Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Work started at the United Nations this week on the next big global environmental treaty. The treaty would create a rules of the road for management of the high seas. This would include provisions for creating marine sanctuaries and other mechanisms to protect sea life and biodiversity. On the line with me to discuss this new treaty, which does not yet have a name, is Elizabeth Wilson of the Pew Charitable Trusts. She explains the problems that this new treaty aspires to solve, how it would fit into other similar global treaties that already exist, like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and the process and politics surrounding the crafting of this treaty and its eventual ratification. I'll admit this was not an issue on my radar, but I'm personally fascinated by the UN treaty process, and it's clear after speaking with Elizabeth that this is going to be one of the most important global conservation efforts over the next few years. And this conversation, I think, does a good job of previewing what this debate will be all about. Please do visit Global Dispatches podcast.com where you can drop me a line, subscribe on iTunes and get our app. I love hearing from you guys. So keep up the emails. And now here is Elizabeth Wilson of Pew Charitable Trusts. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. But there are, there are species like the leatherback sea turtle that spend a portion of their time nesting on beaches, a portion of their time swimming within the waters of particular countries, and then much of their time transiting the high seas. And while they're there, they're interacting with fisheries. Uh, they can be hit by boats. There's all sorts of things going on that could impact those turtles. And so... There's no good way now to protect them across all of the areas where they travel. And so what we're looking at is for animals like that that do spend significant time on the high seas, is there a better way that we could be protecting some of these especially threatened animals? There are also important habitat areas like deep sea coral that can take hundreds of years to, to grow. And so... Right now, if, the, if you were to find a really important area of deep sea coral on the high seas, there's no way to protect that. So we would really like to find a way where we could protect some of these special places and special species across all of the threats that are occurring on the high seas. What do you mean when you say high seas? I think that's like a term that gets flung around about, but it actually has like a pretty distinct meaning, right? Yes. So countries have the ability to make decisions about what happens in their own country's waters. So basically within their exclusive economic zones. But beyond those exclusive economic zones, 
the rest of the ocean is governed by no specific country. It's the property of all of us. And so it makes management much more difficult. And one country alone can't decide that they're going to manage a particular resource on the high seas. It has to be done on the international level. So something through an international agreement like the one that's currently being discussed at the UN. So those areas beyond the national jurisdiction are what we refer to as the high seas. And what um, uses are there of the high seas? I mean, other than for conservation, right? Like one, one proposal, as I take it, is that this proposed treaty would create a, a mechanism whereby there'd be like the equivalent of like international parks, right? Where, where um, biodiversity would be respected. But are there also like mineral extractive extraction going on? Is there fishing? Like what, what else is happening in the high seas? There is. There's fishing. There are proposals for seabed mining that could be – so that is something that could be happening soon. There are also – there's a lot of shipping on the high seas. There are recreational activities occurring. Uh, there are also some emerging technologies that are allowing greater use of the high seas. Uh, for example, we recently heard about some high seas rocket launches um, there are also some proposals for geoengineering projects that could involve the high seas, like putting solar panels on the top of the ocean or uh, tidal power on the high seas. So there's, there are a lot of different things that are either currently happening or could happen as technology improve. So we really need a, a system in place that allows a comprehensive look as to what's going on on the high seas and some area-based management to make sure that these things aren't conflicting with each other. So is it like the Wild West out there right now? It is a bit of the Wild West, yes. And like, what's, what's the problem with that, though? Like, why can't anyone just use the, the high seas in, in any way they see fit? Um, like, what, what problem is this trying to solve? Well, I think there are two problems. One is that there's a lot of marine life out there that is very vulnerable and needs adequate protection. And the current system just isn't providing that. So we would like to see a system that allows for establishing marine protected areas across all sectors and a system that requires environmental impact assessments for potentially damaging activities. Um, so that's one side of it. And then when you look at the various sectors, they have the, uh, the potential to conflict with each other. For example, a regional fisheries body could decide to limit fishing in a particular area because it's where the fish are reproducing. So you Sorry, need what's to... a regional fisheries body? Ah, so the regime... This is UN speak, I believe. <laughs> it is. So under the, the UN law of the sea, there is what they call the, the UN fish stocks agreement which manages migratory fish species that move across borders. And under that agreement, there are a series of regional bodies that have been established to help manage these migratory fish. And so these regional bodies put in place quotas for things like tuna species. And they can also decide to not fish in a particular area if they want to make sure fish are reproducing in that area, um, so they can they can establish protections or closures during certain times of the year when the fish are reproducing. So they have the ability to take these sorts of actions. So they could take that action, but then the International Seabed Authority, which is the body that governs seabed mining, could decide that they're going to allow mining in that same area, which would be damaging for the reproducing fish. So those two activities would then be in conflict with each other. If we had a global regime, 
to look at these sorts of issues, the regional fisheries body could propose through this new treaty a marine protected area that would be protected from all sectors. And so it would keep, it would help minimize some of the conflicts between some of the activities that can be occurring on the high seas. Uh, so you just referenced the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas. Why is this treaty uh, necessary if there's already a UN treaty covering law of the sea? So the Fish Stocks Agreement actually sits under the Law of the Sea as an implementing agreement. It helps provide more information than what's contained in the Law of the Sea and helps make it something that can actually be applied and so the idea is that this new agreement would be very similar to the fish stocks agreement and would sit under the law of the sea as an implementing agreement to help flush out the detail for the concepts that are already included in the law of the sea. Sorry, what do you mean sit under? So it would be an implementing agreement to help um, get the provisions in place that are already included in the law of the sea. Can you maybe walk through an example of, of what that might look like? So there are there are statements in the law of the sea about conservation and protecting uh, marine life, but there's no way to enact them right now. There's no mechanism actually set up in the law of the sea for establishing a marine protected area um, or determining exactly how countries are going to cooperate to manage these ideas. But the big picture ideas are included in that treaty. So the idea is that this would be a new treaty that would be much more specific and like the fish stocks would kind of fit under the umbrella of the law of the sea, but would actually provide the detail needed to implement it. So the fish stocks is an international treaty yes. itself that's independent of the law of the sea? Well, it's considered an implementing agreement for the law of the sea. And then there's another implementing agreement related to seabed mining as well. So this might get a little technical, but since the U.S. has not ratified the law of the sea, are they, have they in some way ratified the fish stocks agreement? Or they have. Okay. So countries can ratify uh, these other agreements without ratifying others. Ah, okay, okay. Because that kind of leads me to, to, to my next question. So you've you know, you've you've made the point that this new treaty that has no name yet, but probably will be called something like the High Seas Treaty, um, you know, is is necessary because it will help um, create an international mechanism by which, among other things, uh, marine life can be conserved, biodiversity can be respected along the high seas, which you said earlier that like no single country has the authority over. Um, so, going forward, what's the process? by which this treaty will be crafted. Presumably it'll follow kind of other standard UN processes where you'll have what's what are called like preparatory committees, prepcoms that will initially debate the outlines of this agreement and then what come to some sort of draft agreement. Is that the the yes. idea? Yes, there has been about a decade of meetings of a working group at the UN on this. And then in June of 2015, the General Assembly adopted a resolution to launch a preparatory committee. And the preparatory committee starts next week. And there will be four weeks of meetings in 2016 and then another four weeks of meetings in 2017. We also expect that there will be pretty significant intercessional work between those formal meetings. And then at the end of 2017, the General Assembly will hopefully decide to convene an intergovernmental conference to work on finalizing the agreement. 
So we see this as a two-year period where we're really going to dive into the detail of what the agreement should look like and really start you know, laying out the details and the complicated questions and trying to figure out how the system would best work. So what are the big debating points then in this treaty? Oftentimes in these uh, treaty negotiation processes, which you say, you know, last a long time, last couple of years, there are a couple of, um, you know, different regional blocks sometimes adopt different stances that need to be reconciled. Uh, what are the big divisions right now, if, if any? So I think it's a little bit soon to say because I think we'll know much more um, after we start getting into the detail next week. But two of the things we've been hearing, uh, one of them relates to fisheries. There are some saying that because there's already another agreement that covers fisheries, that fisheries should be excluded from this agreement. Um, and we think that's a bad idea because we can't get to the comprehensive global regime that we think we need if we start excluding certain sectors from it. We're also concerned that um, the fish stocks agreement that currently exists doesn't actually manage all species of fish and the regional fisheries bodies that have been established under it um, manage even fewer species of fish. And in addition, uh, fishing is one of the biggest impacts on marine biodiversity. So we feel like excluding fish from the agreement uh, would be a, a significant mistake. Instead, we think we need to look at how this new agreement could function with the existing agreements that are already out there so that we have a system that actually works. So that's, and, oh no, sorry, go ahead. Which actually then takes us to the second thing that has already come up as a, a source of contention, which is if a marine protected area is established under the new agreement, should the new agreement be able to establish the management measures for that area or should that job be delegated to the existing sectoral bodies? which is another very complicated question. Well, it sounds like sort of almost like a, a bureaucratic reshuffling is, is what this is calling for in a way to make things a little more um, a little more coherent and work more to the benefit of conservation than current um, than the current you know mechanisms. Exactly. So I think the goal will be to not undermine the existing institutions, but to figure out how to make them best work with this new system. So is the debate that's going to play out politically one potentially between um, like the NGO community and environmentalists and the mineral extractive industry and the commercial fishing industry? Like, are those going to be um, political opponents or obstacles or, or uh, are you, are, are those two communities going to have to, you know, face off in, in some meaningful way here? I mean, I, I would hope that all the various sectors involved and industries involved uh, will come and proactively engage in the negotiations. But I don't think anyone's looking to say these activities can't happen on the high seas. I think they're just some very specific places where they might be in conflict with each other or where there might not need to, we might be best off with no activity at all. And there's the high seas are 64% of the ocean. It's a huge area. And so... I think there's there's plenty of room for all of these activities to occur, and hopefully, um, various industries won't see this negotiation as a threat. Um, are you seeing anything to suggest that they do currently see this as a threat? No, the only thing we've heard is that, you know the interest in figuring out a system that works well and doesn't undermine or try and change in any significant way what they're currently doing. 
Um, so, so finally, um, one, I, I would assume, giant hurdle uh, over this two-year pr- uh, period is going to be like the role of the United States in these negotiations. And I would have to imagine that you know, if, if the next administration is you know, the Clinton administration, Democratic administration, they would probably you know, engage productively um, in these talks. Um, but then, of course, you run into the hurdle of Senate ratification. I mean, you said this is a treaty, right? Um, you know, we've had the law of the sea has, has been a signed treaty by the U.S. since like the 1980s, but it still hasn't been ratified by the U.S. Congress. Um, you have the more recently, the, the most recent real big treaty uh, test for the U.S. Senate was the Disabilities Treaty, uh, which occurred just like two years ago. And even that was like a totally uncontroversial treaty, could not get passed, get ratified by the, the U.S. Senate. Um, how in the world would this new treaty be passed by a, a future U.S. Senate? Well, I think um, there's a the first question of how long will this take, which it could take anywhere from a couple of years to who knows how long. Um, so it's very hard to predict at the point where this is ready for ratification who will be in office. Um, so our hope is that the U.S. will actively participate in the negotiations and try and make the agreement as strong as possible. And then when it's time for ratifications, um, you know, there will be the question of what does the political makeup look like in the U.S. and is it possible to ratify it? Um, but the, the U.S. has joined the fish stocks agreement. They also recently ratified an agreement related to ending illegal fishing, the Port State Measures Agreement. And so it is possible that things can get through. Um, so we're, we are hopeful that at some point the U.S. will be able to join. And so far they are actively engaging in the conversations going on at the U.N. Well, thank you so much. This was really helpful. Um, I had not been so aware of this treaty, and now I, now I am. This is going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I know. It's a brand new process. So I think people are just now learning about it for the fr- first time. As am I. And as of our, as, as of our, everyone out there listening. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. It was great. No problem. It was my pleasure. Okay, thanks. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Learned a lot from that episode, as I usually do. You know, I, I say this a lot, but I choose my interviews. I choose my topics when they're not recommended by you. I, I choose them based on basically what I want to learn about, what I want to learn a little bit more about. And this was something I knew absolutely nothing about going into. Now I feel like I have a pretty good handle on it. So you know, thank you listeners for giving me the opportunity to learn about the world professionally. And it's kind of a cool job. Thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.